welcome back to FinTech Recap, the first FinTech Recap of 2023. Uh, my name is Alex Johnson. I am the creator of the FinTech Takes newsletter. And joining me as usual, uh, back from the holidays, is Jason Mikula of FinTech Business Weekly. Jason, thanks for being here. Uh, happy to be here. My uh, limited tan from one or two days in Mexico is already gone, and uh, we're back to regular programming of cold rain here in the Netherlands. Excellent. Excellent. Yes, we. Um, I'm still telling people about the day uh, right before Christmas where it got down to negative 40 degrees Fahrenheit uh, in Bozeman, Montana. Um, so that's our uh, recent claim to fame weather-wise. I was um, under my house uh with a hairdryer unfreezing a couple pipes that were temporarily frozen. So um, always, always fun and exciting in uh, Montana in winter. I mean, I think between that and the bears, you don't need to worry about me moving there anytime soon. Excellent. Yes. Um, I, I try to uh, advertise this as much as possible, but it's, it's a hellscape here. So um, follow Jason's lead and do not move here. Do you have any uh, uh, programming notes for us before we get started? I do. Thanks for the reminder. Yeah. So um, as folks who've been listening to this podcast know for a while, um, Jason has uh, graciously taken the lead on um, publishing this podcast to his uh, podcast feed, which uh, we will continue to do. However, uh, I will be relaunching the FinTech Takes podcast feed starting in February, uh, which will feature Jason and a number of other exciting FinTech conversations. Um, I will share more information on that through my newsletter, but watch out for that coming and there'll be another place to get FinTech recap every month relatively soon. Amazing. Even more FinTech podcasts for 2023. Love it. That's right. That's right. Everyone uh, download, subscribe, like, do all the things that uh, you normally do. And uh, with that, Jason, should we jump into the news? Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to kick it off with uh, Goldman's slow dismantling of uh, Marcus. I feel very uh, all kinds of emotions about the baby I helped build being slowly split up and separated and wound down. Um, I mean, it kind of kicked off last year with a reorg, which was with their Q3 earnings, if I'm not mistaken. And I kind of joke that that split the baby in the sense that Marcus and Marcus branded stuff went into this new business unit with wealth and asset management. Uh, and then a new division dubbed Platform Solutions was formed to house Apple, GM, uh, Green Sky, as well as the transaction or TXB banking business. <laughs> now, more recently, there was some unconfirmed reporting that Goldman was going to cease doing unsecured personal lending altogether. Uh, and as of about a week ago, uh, the head of Marcus, uh, former Stripe and PayPal exec Swati Bhatia, uh, stepped down from her role. So when you sort of look at all these pieces together, it kind of feels like the writing is on the wall, at least perhaps for Marcus, the brand, right? Maybe Goldman carries on doing some of these product activities within you know different places within your, the organization. Uh, but it kind of feels like Marcus is is headed for a quick demise here in 2023. I mean, I'm I'm interested to get your thoughts, Alex, because so many sort of commentators, analysts pointed to Goldman and pointed to Marcus as an example of a bank, you know, doing fintech well. You know, and here we are. I think six ish, seven ish years, um, you know, after the initiative started. And I think it's really hard to make a case that it's going well at this point. I mean, what what is your kind of read on the situation? Yeah, I mean, I'll I'll take the L right away. I was one of those analysts that wrote one of those pieces on. Um, I think I titled it uh, "This Is How You Do a Digital Spinoff Bank." Um, and uh, at the time, I was contrasting Marcus with efforts from Wells Fargo. I think their uh, digital only bank for millennials was called Greenhouse. Um, Chase had one briefly called Finn. Um, you still see these occasionally, although that's kind of gone out of vogue for large banks at this point. And, you know, at the time, my analysis was that Marcus made sense in a way that a lot of those other ones did because it wasn't competitive with Goldman Sachs' existing investment banking business. And um, I think on the surface, that's true. But um, 
you know, as, as more information started to get sort of reported out over time and as things kind of settled in, obviously Marcus had some very big and early wins. They built a really strong book of uh, unsecured personal lending business. They um, uh, obviously had all the wins with Apple and the Apple card, which was a big get at the time. Um, but maybe around the time that Green Sky was purchased, it feels like that was kind of like the high point in some ways where Marcus and Goldman Sachs were really feeling themselves. But it started to become clear that, at least from my perspective, they were burning through a ton of cash, right? Spending mm-hmm. a lot of money. Um, there was a lot of sort of resentment. Maybe you can comment on this having worked there, but there's a lot of resentment sort of building up inside the rest of the organization that like, you know, Marcus is operating by a different set of rules. They get to spend all of this money. Um, obviously there was quite a bit of executive turnover even before, uh, the, the most recent, uh, change that you mentioned. And I guess what kind of became clear to me is that, um, even if you don't have a, sort of direct conflict uh, in terms of, oh, you know, we're cannibalizing our existing business. Any new initiative that's sufficiently big is going to create a lot of internal conflict simply because, um, you know, there's only so many resources, right? And there's there's always sort of a resentment, I think, that, um, you know, oh, this other business, why do they get all these special uh, things? Why do they get special allowances when we don't? And it feels like it just got to a point where, between that sort of bubbling resentment and the fact that, um, you know, a lot of the sort of original sponsors of the project left, there just wasn't enough sort of internal cohesion to keep to keep Marcus kind of running the way that it had been. So I think at a high level, that's my take. But what, what do you think? I mean, I think that that, you know, unsurprisingly, I, I agree with Alex's opinion. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think that that's generally correct. I mean, the the perspective i would add and frankly this generalizes to you know other other fintechs you know other neo banks etc is you know it's very easy to tell a story that you know you're going to launch with product a in this case unsecured personal loan then you're going to start building these other offerings and it's just going to be so easy to like cross sell your customers and all of a sudden you know they're going to be on three or four or five products and you're going to have like really great LTV or ARPU however you're measuring it the reality usually does not look like that for a number of reasons i mean the the most important of which is you know the customer who's coming in for uh, personal loan, which most commonly is used to c- consolidate debt, often credit card debt, is probably not the same person who's using a robo-advisor or necessarily opening a high-yield savings account. So, you know, you can, you know, look at what Goldman built and they did begin to tick those boxes of, you know, what's on a bank's home screen. They've got loans, they've got savings account, they've got credit card, sort of. You know, they've got investment, sort of. Um, they started to tick all of those boxes, but I never saw a coherent strategy materialize for who those different boxes were aimed at, right? It was kind of like you're marketing all of this to everybody, but actually, you know, some of these are more niche products uh, that you're going to have a hard time cross-selling that customer into other things. I mean, I think it's going to be an interesting contrast to watch uh, J.P. Morgan Chase's efforts in the UK, which I think are, in in a way, like the most closely analogous. I think in the US, I would point to like SoFi as being the most comparable company slash Mm -hmm. strategy to what Goldman was doing inside of Marcus. And then in the UK, I would would probably point to what Chase is doing. I mean, Chase... has an entirely different DNA, right? It has a deep uh, history experience launching consumer products, even when it means, you know, losing a ton of money. I mean, if you remember back to Chase Sapphire Reserve and the amount Chase spent on uh, sign-up bonuses and rewards and points, et cetera, to get that out the door and get mass adoption, I don't have the number in front of me, but I'm sure it was like, hundreds of millions of dollars. And there's kind of rerunning that playbook in the UK in the sense that they're giving cash back on debit, which is 
not normal really anywhere, but definitely not in the UK. They're giving you know aggressive uh, interest rates on savings accounts. So in a sense, they're still you know buying market share, buying their customers. But I think Chase presumably you know has a more refined playbook to how how to turn that into profitability over time. Whereas to your point about some of the friction you know within different units of Goldman, the exec turnover within Marcus, it kind of feel feels like you know there there wasn't a strategy or maybe you know at one point there was but you know you go to your second or third or fourth round of you know md level staff you have you know senior sponsors leave new people come in with different ideas and you get kind of this mishmash of products without like a clear vision of who's the consumer i'm serving what problem am i solving for them um yeah i mean it, it'll be interesting to see how the next you know 6 or 12 months uh, turnout for for those guys. Yeah, no, I I agree with everything you just said. I mean, I I think that to your point, Chase is a really interesting analogy uh, to use because while they have run into issues like doing fin and not wanting to compete with themselves and then closing that down, when they go into a new market like the UK, to your point, like retail banking is in their DNA, right? They know how to do that, and it doesn't really require one single driving individual with a vision that makes it happen, you know, that person could leave and someone else could take over and they would still know how to do retail banking and the larger sort of chase apparatus would be able to drive that idea forward because they know what that playbook looks like. They wrote it. Goldman, I think to your point is very different, right? I mean, Marcus was so dependent on a set of individuals driving this vision and having faith from senior leadership at Goldman Sachs. And when some of those things changed, there was just no DNA to fall back on. The DNA is, you know, what we're seeing them sort of re-entrench in right now, which is investment banking and doing the thing that they know really well. So no, I think I think everything you said is right. And I'll be curious to see, you know, to what degree Marcus continues to kind of limp along or if they do just sort of lop off uh, the final changes and just, just kind of close it down and move on. Time will tell. Uh, with that, do you want to take us to our second story today? One I think uh, both you and I know pretty pretty well. Yeah, yeah. So um, if uh, Goldman Sachs is uh, one beat that we cover a lot in this podcast, another one I think Jason and I are pretty uh, interested in is the sort of emerging uh, ideas that are out there for for what a good Gen Z bank looks like. So um, two different uh, companies that I want to talk about in this section that have both been in the news recently. The first one is Zelf, uh, which uh, listeners might remember from some of the content in both Jason and I's newsletters over the last month or so. Um, it's kind of hard to believe, honestly, that this was just a month ago because it uh, feels like a lifetime. But um, Zelf is a... Uh, Neobank, I guess you'd call it, that um, recently sort of relaunched itself on Product Hunt, uh, calling itself the Bank of the Metaverse. And uh, among other things, uh, promoting the idea of a uh, anonymous debit card. Um, and I, I wrote about it a lot in my newsletter, sort of trying to, as accurately as I could, describe what the product itself is. Um, and it's really hard, honestly, because... Um, there's sort of a um, kind of core neobanking set of functionality. There's a, a debit card, which is uh, anonymous, or at least was uh, briefly while they were able to uh, to kind of get away with that. Um, there's NFT, there's the ability to uh, sort of buy and transfer crypto. Um, there's the metaverse, which I think in the way that Zelf describes it is the ability to sort of link uh, in-game video game assets like different skins and weapons and other sort of perks that you pick up while playing video games, the ability to link those to your Zelf account and then be able to to sell those uh, to others in order to to generate some some new revenue. Um, what's interesting to me about Zelf, this bank of the metaverse, is that it's really not the first version of Zelf that existed. Zelf's been around for a while, actually, and it started out as a more sort of straightforward product. It was kind of a, a neobank with a sort of a messaging overlay. So rather than uh, downloading an app, you would use whatever messaging app you already use and basically sort of text back and forth with Zelf to open an account or to conduct transactions. 
And, you know, I thought that was an interesting uh, product at the time. Um, maybe it's not quite exactly right or what Gen Z was looking for, but um, it was an interesting concept. It started out with sort of a light KYC functionality for this messaging-based payments uh, concept that was actually, you know, permitted when they launched it in Europe up to a certain dollar amount. And at some point along the way, the product just kind of evolved into, this is what I wrote about in my newsletter, kind of the dumbest possible version of itself, like metaverse, NFTs, crypto, you know, just like the whole product became way zanier than it was originally, seemingly with the intent of appealing to Gen Z. And by the same token, um, another fintech company that I've been paying attention to over the last couple of months and that recently made an acquisition uh, is a, a European neobank called Twig. Um, Twig has raised about $40 million so far. And interestingly, it claims that it's one of the fastest growing fintechs in Europe with over a million downloads of its app in over in just under uh, 290 days, so less than a year. Um, it says that it's become the number one fintech app in Italy and one of the top apps in the US and the number two in the app store in the UK. I cannot verify any of those numbers, uh, but that is what they claim. Um, they recently acquired a, a fintech company in Europe called Vibe Technologies, which I'd never heard of. Jason, have you heard of Vibe Technologies? I have not heard of Vibe Technologies. Okay. Apparently they do like teen banking and financial literacy. So they they scoop them up. It's actually the third acquisition they've made in about a year. And I'll try to describe Twig as accurately as I can. They They are what they call your bank for things, which I find to be fascinating. Um, and they want to be, as they say, the go-to platform for Gen Z. And it's basically a neobank, uh, debit card, P2P payments, uh, now banking for teens after this acquisition, that's been fused together with what they sort of describe as like a circular economy app. And what that means is it allows for their users to sort of reuse and upcycle uh, the various things that they have that they might not need anymore. So for example, one of the things you can do in the app is take an inventory of your things, bank of things, like your sort of clothing or uh, electronics that you might have like an iPhone. And if at any point you want to liquidate any of those things, you can sell them through the uh, Twig app and uh, get cash instantly uh, kind of deposited within your um, your Twig account. So it's sort of trying to help consumers uh, reduce the amount of stuff that they throw away while at the same time trying to sort of uh, turn all of your things into assets that you can bank. Kind of similar to uh, Zelf in that they're trying to sort of help you be able to liquidate and get value out of your assets. Uh, this has a little bit more of a, a real world take on that concept, although it does say on their website that they are starting to get into Web3 payments and they mentioned NFTs. It's a little unclear at this point what that is. But, you know, overall, Jason, and I'd love to get your take on this. Um, I'm baffled by these products and these companies, and I can't really tell if it's because I'm old uh, and I'm not Gen Z or if it's because maybe no one really knows what Gen Z actually wants out of banking, or maybe there's sort of this market, uh, even if it's just among VCs for sort of give us your wackiest, most interesting creative take on banking for Gen Zs and make it unique and make it stand out. And so these companies sort of uh, vie to compete for sort of the goofiest type of app that they can offer, thinking that that equals, oh, this is what Gen Z is going to want, when in fact, Maybe Gen Z just wants normal banking products the way that everyone else does. I don't know. What what are you, what's your take on all of this? Yeah, I mean, from the product feature benefit perspective, maybe we're just too old. <laughs> that that was my first that was my first thought. Jason um, and I are like the oldest millennials on earth, so that's very possible. Geriatric millennial, I think, is the technical term. <laughs> um, but but trying to be a little more serious, I, I'm I'm trying to like apply a lens of you know what are assets and like let's use that term very expansively that you know somebody who is Gen Z or whatever the one after Z is Alpha, um, yep. and if I try to like un you know have an unfortunate time warp and imagine like myself circa. 
late high school, mid high school, like what are kids doing? You know, okay, maybe you have like a allowance, maybe you have a part-time job, uh, like maybe you collect baseball cards or magic, the gathering, like (laughs) in our era, that would be like a tangible item. If you equate those things to this sort of, you know, game loot slash NFT crypto, et cetera, extended universe, I could see how you could begin to tell that story, at least to a VC of like, Oh yeah. Like this is how, you know, kids want to, I sound so old. Kids want to see like in one, you know, in one screen, or I guess in this case in, you know, uh, WhatsApp or Facebook Messenger app, you want to see like, this is how many dollars I have. This is how many Dogecoin I have. This is how many like battle axes I have. And this is how many uh, Donald Trump NFTs I have. Uh, I'm like, at this point, I don't have any data like quantitative or anecdotal to like suge- suggest that this is remotely true or untrue. And I mean, if anything, you know, the, um, the Zelf story, which you did a really great job of unpacking in your newsletter is frankly, even more nonsensical because it's like tumbling all those things together with like anonymity, which yeah. would seem to appeal to like a very different type of audience versus like, you know, a gamer, teenager, Gen Z. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I, I'll hold out the distinct possibility that that you and I are just too old and don't spend enough time around uh, Gen Z individuals to have a firm understanding of this. I, I, I'm completely willing to believe that, you know, there are generational differences in how people think about and interact with money, right? I don't think that any of my uh, nieces who are between the ages of like zero and 10, you know, probably not going to have a physical piggy bank with like paper bills and coins. I don't know. Does the tooth fairy still like come and bring like, like half dollars? I'm guessing that that's going to be a very different experience for, you know, subsequent generations, how that is manifested in, in what we're talking about in a you know a banking app a payment app is this the answer is this an idea trying to find a problem i do not really know <laughs> yeah i mean i i suppose i should just i have a a 4 year old son so when he gets to tooth fairy age maybe nfts are the way to go rather than actual money i i don't know how he'll feel about that at the time what do you I, put I under you... the pillow what what do you put under the pillow though well that's a great question right like do i <laughs> Like, I mean, maybe maybe it's like a, Q, um, a QR code printout that like links to the NFT or something. I was thinking a, a, a cold wallet, like one of those, oh, uh, yeah. you know, just like whatever the newest one is at the time, just like load up the NFT on the cold wallet, sort of jam it under his uh, pillow. It'll probably make his head hurt a little bit. I mean, going back to your point about um, Zelf in terms of like who their target market is, that's kind of where I landed too. I, I'm looking at my piece that I wrote and uh I asked specifically in the piece, you know, who is the target market? Is it a 18-year-old privacy-obsessed digital nomad wandering from country to country playing video games and buying and flipping NFTs and loot for a living while never spending more than $3,000 a month? Like that 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 is I think a pretty accurate description of if you were to backwards engineer all the features and messaging that Zelf was using to describe itself, I think that's actually a pretty accurate way of describing who you would guess the target market is for. But of course, that's a ridiculous description of an actual target market. So I do struggle with this. And it's the same thing with, you know, Twig. I mean, I think the circular economy is interesting. I think giving, um, you know, consumers an ability to sort of see uh, an inventory of all of their assets and be able to sort of manage those in a more flexible digital way. Like there's something interesting there. But I also would imagine there are lots of Gen Z consumers that have never heard the term circular economy and maybe mm. don't care as much about those things. And so I I do always find it interesting how companies, and I would imagine that the founders of these companies are a little older, at least, than the, the target market they're going after. They sort of glom on to like one or two elements of what defines a generation and then sort of set out to build the platform for Gen Z When in fact, you know, Gen Z is a very large generation that has probably a lot of sort of diverse viewpoints and things that they care about. And 
I don't think it's an accident that over time, you know, pick out whatever sort of disruptive company that's existed in the past that sort of matured into a mainstream company. All disruptors end up being sort of boring, somewhat lowest common denominator type companies, at least from a brand perspective, because over time, you're trying to sort of lock in and stay with an entire generation of customers who change over time and who grow and who have sort of evolving needs. And even if right now my sort of defining need is, you know, keeping track of all of my video game loot and turning that into real cash and crypto, that probably won't be my number one financial need uh, five years from now, 10 years mm -hmm. from now. And so I do sort of struggle with a lot of these apps that seem so hyper-focused on sort of locking in some sub-segment of a very young, immature banking generation at the potential expense of being able to build sort of a longer, more sustainable business. So I struggle with that. Do you want to spend just a minute uh, talking about the uh, sort of banking as a service implications on Zelf specifically? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it, when I saw the product hunt announcement, and, and and that definitely seemed to get some some traction within you know more, fintech, more than they wanted, I think. yeah, within yeah. within fintech Twitter, fintech LinkedIn, uh, particularly the the anonymous component of it, right? Because you know, I was already aware of this company. I, I mentioned it in in a piece previously, but it, it didn't have this like anonymous positioning at that point. I mean, I think it. it sort of begs the question of like, how did this happen? How did this get live in production? Um, and, and what, you know, what role or responsibility does its banking as a service platform uh, that it worked with have? And what responsibility does the underlying bank partner have Um in you know the kind of due diligence compliance etc it did when it accepted you know zelf as a customer and in the course of of launching this product i mean it, it's worth noting that i think within one day of that product hunt announcement uh the the sponsor bank or the bass platform or both um pulled the plug and, and they were no longer able to issue you know new cards i do still have five dollars in my account that i'm i'm hoping i get back someday well, uh, dare to dream, Jason. And, um, you know, if you can't get it out, maybe you can at least transfer it into a an NFT or buy some loot or something. But um, no, I think that's a good point. And I, um, I have heard that um, kind of in concert with this, Evolve is taking a look, and, and I think you reported on some of this stuff similarly, Evolve being the um, banking as a service bank behind the scenes, that they're taking a broader look at all of the fintech companies that they're working with and making some changes. I think this also might have perhaps unfortunately a bit of blowback for the sort of light KYC model, which I do think there are lots of reasonable use cases for it. But when you pair that model with messaging around like the first anonymous debit card, there's going to be some blowback that I think unfortunately might um, harm some others in the ecosystem as well. So it does feel like this is a good example of banking as a service sort of taking some of the lumps that we've known have been coming and uh, it'd be interesting to see what comes out the other side. Yeah, it, it'll be uh wait, wait and see what kind of uh, regulatory fallout, if any uh, results from, from that. And speaking of that, do you want to take us oh. to our, uh, one of our last stories that's also uh, sort of fallout for banks that have made. <laughs> Absolutely. And so, I mean, I, I should start off with a caveat, which is, you know, uh, I, I haven't like super closely been following banks that serve as uh, enabling partners to the crypto ecosystem, but it definitely has become a very interesting story, sort of post FTX uh, and to a lesser extent BlockFi bankruptcy, as far as, you know, what, uh, how did these banking partners go about deciding to work with these companies again, not to sound so boring, but like what kind of due diligence and compliance did they do, but also, uh, and this really came to the fore last week, what is the impact on the safety and soundness of the banks themselves? And so there's really about a handful, four or five, uh, banks that ha have gone all in on this model, you know, most notably Silvergate, uh, but also signature customers, Metropolitan and Provident have really sort of aggressively 
sought to expand their business in crypto over the course of the last, you know, 18, 24 months in, in a lot of those cases. Um, I mean, Wall Street Journal reported that Silvergate saw some $8.1 billion in deposit flight in the fourth quarter. To meet those deposits, it had to rapidly liquidate assets to meet those withdrawals, leading to some $718 million in losses, wiping out aggregate profit since 2013. I think Silvergate is the most extreme case. Uh, S&P Global had some analysis of uh, the share of deposits coming from crypto-related like businesses, and something like 98% of Silvergate's deposits were from crypto-related companies, so like really high concentrated exposure. Um, but there, there are other you know problems lurking beneath the surface that we haven't seen all of the details of yet. I mean, I went deep on Provident, uh, which its bank name is Bank Prov, uh, and it seemed to drum up an interesting business in lending money to Bitcoin mining companies, where the loan was secured by the quote unquote mining rig, or as I like to call it, fancy computer. Uh, <laughs> like, okay, like this seems reasonable. I lent you money. You bought a fancy computer. If you don't pay me back, I'm going to repo your fancy computer. The problem is the value of that asset of the mining rig is linked to the profitability of Bitcoin mining, which in turn is linked to the price of Bitcoin or whatever other crypto asset you might be facilitating. And the cost of energy, electricity needed to run the mining rig. And they just depreciate like any physical asset depreciates. So, I mean, sure. BankProv found itself in a situation where you know, some company it lent, I was like $24 million to, was like, uh, we can't pay you back, but we'll, we'll, give, this, we'll give this mining rig back to you. Um, and at this point, uh, they have not filed their third quarter 10Q. Uh, because they couldn't figure out how bad their losses were. Uh, mm -hmm. And here we are in you know early January. They still haven't published that. It does not sound like a great situation. You know, on top of that, you had uh, joint guidance from the Federal Reserve Board, the FDIC, and the OCC uh, earlier this month, which was relatively brief. I want to say it was like two pages, mm -hmm. um, but some quite pointed uh, commentary on the uh you know safety and soundness risks for banks issuing or holding as principal crypto assets that are issued stored or transferred on an open public and or decentralized network basically saying like if you're a bank you can't do this because we do not consider it to be consistent with safe and sound banking practices and then goes on to sort of talk about concentration risk of dealing with crypto crypto asset related companies deposits lending etc so i mean at this point um you know it, it seems like there is a bit of a retreat from a lot of companies in the space although weirdly i think silvergate like doubled down and said like no no sorry i'm thinking of bank prove doubled down and said we still believe in the model um uh, although Metropolitan earlier today announced it would exit serving crypto companies. Uh, so so a lot of like little bits and pieces there. I mean, Alex, would you want to work with or for a bank that 98% of its deposits came from crypto-related companies? I wouldn't, no. Uh, and uh, that would have made me look like an idiot two years ago when everything was sort of on the way up and everything was going great. Um, and I think that's generally sort of the attitude that a lot of people had around this is like, I can't believe there aren't more banks like Silvergate that are like going all in on this. They're just printing money. This is amazing. But, you know, I think, you know, to your point, there's just this sort of, and we know this in banking, we've known this for hundreds of years, like there's a risk adjusted return that you get for doing this job. And anything that's way more, way less, you're running your business in a non-consensus way. And I think that, you know, it's interesting because I do actually think it ties back to the banking as a service space a little bit too, just in that community banks, which generally have a lot more sort of leeway and flexibility to kind of take their business wherever they want relative to larger banks that are just kind of more closely supervised. Community banks, I think over the last maybe 10 years, just sort of found these opportunities in a zero interest rate environment where they're like, oh, wow, look at this. 
you could just make a ton of money by by doing nothing but this. And sort of slowly, or in some cases, sort of all at once, they jumped into those areas and a few would get into the space and then others would sort of see them go and go, wow, well, they're making a lot of money. We should go do that. And pretty soon you have these whole sectors within banking, particularly smaller banks, um, where to your point, going back to the, the word you used before, the concentration risk is huge, right? It's 98% crypto or it's 70% banking as a service or whatever. And, you know, you can kind of tell a story within that concentration risk of going, well, you know, we're diversified because we do a little bit of uh, lending to uh, Bitcoin miners to buy their rigs, but we also do lending to, you know, crypto exchanges. And we do this thing over here with DeFi that's totally uncorrelated with this other thing. But actually everything you're doing within that area is a concentration risk in the same way that if you're a you know, regional bank and all of your loans are in, you know, the Gulf Coast region of Florida, and then there's a hurricane, well, suddenly they're all correlated and your performance is going to suffer across the board, even though you might have a bunch of different types of products and types of customers within that region. Like concentration risk comes in all kinds of different categories. And I think that a type of concentration risk that we weren't paying attention to and that I think regulators got caught flat-footed by was the concentration risk of smaller banks entering into markets that only make sense in a zero interest rate environment. Mm -hmm. I do not disagree. Uh, With that, should we squeeze in a couple of quick uh, 2023 predictions? Yes, we should. And I will say um, for for readers of both our newsletters, you've probably seen that Jason published an awesome uh, 2023 predictions post. So Jason, I'm going to let you go first. I've been negligent in doing my own predictions. So while you're talking, I'll try to think of a few of my own, but why don't you give us the highlights? What are some of the the things you're focused on for this year from a prediction standpoint? Yeah. I mean, it probably uh, won't surprise anybody that that one of them focuses on banking as a service. I mean, my uh, loose prediction on this space is there are conflicting or intersecting forces that I see sort of buffeting this space, right? So if you try to think about where was the demand coming for banking as a service that encouraged all of these banks to rush in and all of these platforms to develop, it was fintech formation and fintech growth, right? They were the buyers of these services. You know, we've already seen sort of the VC wave recede and sort of apparently normalize uh, around you know three-ish billion a month in VC funding, at least for the last couple of months, which is, I mean, dramatically lower than it was for sort of the last two years. Um, to me, like that is one of the ingredients that was fueling this bass explosion. And that, you know, that ingredient, that uh, fuel has been substantially reduced, right? You know, on the other hand, you know, we have I think what we can all agree is increasing regulatory scrutiny, right? My favorite phrase. Um, yeah, at this point, we've, we've only seen uh, one consent order from the OCC, which was Blue Ridge. You know, I think there's reasonable um, reasonable reason to believe that, that there are probably more coming. Mm-hmm. Um, and in turn, that is going to mean increased compliance costs for everybody participating in this ecosystem, the bank, middleware platforms, and fintech. So you have likely decreasing demand as VC money moves out and increasing cost. I think we're going to see you know, some banks that maybe dabbled, played in the space, decide like, this isn't for us. We don't have you know the right uh, technical capability. We don't have the adequate compliance resources. Like the risk is no longer worth the return. I think you're going to see some banks exit this space altogether. Um, I think it's even possible to see an acquisition or a failure in that middleware uh, or platform space. I mean, it, it felt like very rapidly, you know, you went from sort of one or two better known platforms to like six, seven, eight. Uh, and it just doesn't, particularly again, with where I think the climate is headed this year, it doesn't feel like there is going to be a sort of enough business to go around to, to make all of those business models work. Um, and then really quickly, you know, in the Apple universe, um, my outside bets are expanding the savings and or Apple credit card to the UK market, 
I mean, Goldman's already active there, uh, only on the saving side. Uh, so we'll say like low probability that that happens. We kind of already talked about it, but I'm 99% convinced that the Marcus brand is going to get killed off. Um, rest in peace. In crypto, I mean, I know we just talked about this. I mean, I struggle with this because I apply like a rational investor mindset where I want to say like, okay, like how could this possibly be worth X when like Y and Z are happening? But I've talked to enough people who've convinced me that like crypto is an ideology and an identity more so than a rational investment philosophy or product. And so despite all the drama and fallout that we see happening, I actually don't think you're going to see the price move that much. You know, as long as there are true believers, the way that there were, you know, gold bugs, you know, hiding whatever gold in their safe deposit box or under the mattress, as long as there are true believers, there's going to be some level of price support. And so I don't think, you know, despite everything we've seen in 2020 and the beginning of this year, I don't think you're going to see, um, you know, crypto go away uh, or anything like that. Uh, did I give you enough time to, to think of your predictions? You did. You did. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Jason was very kindly uh, stretching those out while I um, was writing down a couple. So agree with everything you said. Um, a couple I would add in. This one's not at all uh, sort of going against consensus, but I do think B2B fintech and fintech infrastructure relative to B2C is going to be uh, a big theme this year. I mean, B2C's time, I think, has sort of come and gone, at least from a VC perspective. There's still a lot of companies and ideas and early stage founders that are um, doing interesting things in the B2C space. Uh, but I think the support for that is just going to be less in the ecosystem than it's been the last couple of years. Um, I think and kind of connected to that on the fintech infrastructure side, I think we're going to see fintech companies selling their products or services directly to banks uh, at a level and with an intensity that I don't think we've seen before. I, When I talk to folks in the fintech infrastructure space, there's it's so much easier for them to sell to other fintech companies because they understand those companies they have friends at those companies the procurement process isn't too difficult and there's been enough money to jason's point in the vc ecosystem that uh those fintech companies have had money to spend on fintech infrastructure i don't think that same amount of money is going to be there but it will still be at banks and i do think that banks are interested in buying more technology from fintechs, not just through acquisitions, but actually just procuring it from, from fintech vendors. And I think fintech companies are going to figure out how to do that. They'll hire better salespeople. They'll um, sort of learn to navigate these enterprise sales that are 18 to 24 months long and constantly shifting around. Uh, and once you sort of figure out the art of doing that, there's a great deal of value hiding there. So I think fintech is going to tap into that. Um, you know, Jason, building off your point about sort of the regulatory side of things, I do think the OCC in particular is going to get much more serious about a lot of this stuff than they've been. I think the OCC is one of those um, agencies that um, for a long time has been kind of stuck in the mud in terms of just like their view on technology. I actually wrote a piece a while ago asking if the OCC actually understood what banking as a service is, because it wasn't totally clear to me based on some of their comments. But they're hiring a bunch of people for like an office that's focused on financial technology. They're making it much more of a priority. Obviously, they're getting much more into regulating banking as a service more closely. So I think the OCC is going to really take kind of a, a quantum leap forward in terms of sort of how it's approaching these things. Um, and then my final prediction is I think that embedded finance is maybe a little uh, overplayed in terms of a trend, but I do think that embedded lending as a subsection with an embedded finance is going to have a good year in 2023. And the reason I think that is that a lot of the things that make uh, lending, generally speaking, hard in this environment, you know, higher rates, higher cost of capital, all of these things, I don't think they're going to apply to embedded lending quite the same way. Because I think a lot of the companies that will be doing the lending won't necessarily be looking for the same margin that fintech companies or banks will be looking for because they have other reasons that they're lending the money besides just making a return. Uh, I think they might have sort of better data or at least different data that gives them a view into 
the credit worthiness uh, or the value of the people that they're lending to, which might open up the credit box a bit more than it would be if it was direct lending. And, um, you know, generally, I just think that embedded lending is sort of well set up in this environment to do well. So those are the ones I would toss out there. We will uh, have to check back in at the end of the year and uh, see how we both did. Yeah, Jason does a great job of holding himself accountable. So Jason, hold me accountable too. Let's make sure we revisit yes. this now. I'll put it in the show notes for uh, December fifteenth, twenty twenty three. Jason's also really organized. He has the show notes for all of the months coming up for the next year already. <laughs> add it, uh, add it in there. All right, before we go, super quick, can't let it goes for this month. Uh, what's yours? I just, I don't even have like a well-formed thought or analysis other than just how ridiculous this is. So my can't let it go is some of FTX's uh, venture investments. And it actually reminded me of a point I think you made recently of like, what business do venture-backed startups have playing, you know, venture investor themselves? Like, shouldn't they be heads down, busy building their own business? Um but I digress. FTX uh, invested $100 million in Neobank Dave. And apparently, according to recent reporting, that $100 million came from stolen customer funds, because I guess that's how this business works. Yeah. Um, yeah, totally. And then the the addendum, and perhaps even more uh, ridiculous, is the investment in Robinhood. Uh, so as listeners may may be familiar, um, SBF, uh, Sam Bankman-Fried, uh, ha- had a large, something like $460 million as as of today, plus or minus, shares worth of Robinhood. Those were not the property of FTX. Those were in a uh, private holding company that SBF set up to hold those for him personally. And that holding company borrowed the money from Alameda to buy those shares. Like how that could ever pass any kind of board approval, I have no idea, probably because like there was no board. Um, And now it's generated uh, a real interesting dispute over, you know, who owns those or who should own those as this bankruptcy proceeding unfolds. Uh, So FTX uh, under its new leadership, John J. Ray uh, of Enron bankruptcy fame, is trying to claw back those shares for FTX, the company, so for its creditors. Uh, but they were also pledged to BlockFi as collateral for a loan that BlockFi gave Alameda. BlockFi is also bankrupt, uh, spoiler, and wants, <laughs> and wants those shares. Um, and SBF himself is now making the case that no, he should get them because he needs the money to pay for his legal defense. It, it's just like beyond oh. like through the looking glass insanity. And you know what? You know who's uh, happy about this? Bankruptcy lawyers who are billing by the hour. Oh my God. Well, and like writing new chapters for textbooks for how they're going to teach this stuff in the future. I mean, it's amazing. The I saw the SBF uh, argument, and it basically boiled down to he should get it to pay for his legal defense because he's facing a uh, criminal uh, threat of basically going to jail, whereas all of the other creditors are just facing financial loss. And so in a <laughs> rational sense, he deserves it more than they do, which it, it, you can kind of, again, through the looking glass, be like, well, kind of makes sense until you're like wait no he stole the money from them so no it doesn't make any sense at all but like it's that crazy where you're like well you know it's it's the most bizarre story with i will say the exception of one that i'm so happy to have for my can't let it go because jason i'm stealing it from you i think you claimed digs on this uh when it happened on Twitter, but you forgot to put it in the show notes. I, for, I forgot. I forgot. No, he, he, this is legit. Um, this is the Trump NFT uh, collecting cards, I guess is what they are. Um, tra- tra- I think they're trading cards. Trading cards. Yeah. So they're, they're Trump trading cards and they're NFTs. And, you know, I don't know. I, same thing. Like, I don't even really have any analysis over this. Um they are the most embarrassing, horrific things ever as, as like trading cards. So if you haven't seen them yet, I, this is my warning to you to not look at them because you'll never be able to unsee them once you see them. 
Um, but they're, they're horrible. And interestingly, and maybe somewhat predictably, although I was still surprised, they did all sell out very quickly when they went on sale. So the, the, the question is, you know, who was who buying them <laughs> with, with what Russian yes. money? <laughs> yes. Well, no. And that is the question because the real mark of, I suppose, value in NFT land, although I don't even know what that means anymore, is like, is there a secondary market for it? Are there mm -hmm. secondary sales? Do they continue to trade? Do they hold their value? Well, no. It was reported that um, less than two weeks after that initial sale, the overall volume of sales in uh, among all of these trading cards dropped by 98% from its peak. So they essentially went from all selling out to the market itself being dead, uh, which would suggest that whoever bought them uh, was maybe not buying them for the reasons other people buy NFTs or uh, quickly lost their enthusiasm for them after looking at how horrifying they are. Um, and I think I, my overall takeaway on this beyond just the absurdity of the trading cards themselves is um, minting NFTs is really starting to feel like littering to me. And I know it's not quite that because they're digital, they're not physical. It's not like I have to drive on the highway and see them just blowing across the, you know, Montana uh, landscape, but they are being stored out there, right? Blockchains have computational requirements for sort of maintaining a ledger and a record of all of these things. And, you know, whenever I go into my uh, NFT uh, sort of uh, crypto wallet, and I look at the one NFT I bought, you know, two years ago uh, in order to sort of test all this out and learn about it. And now I feel stupid because even though I didn't spend a lot of money, it's worth a fraction of what it was worth before. Not only is that one still sadly sitting in there, but I have a whole bunch of other ones that people have sent to me that I can't get rid of because anyone can send anyone NFTs and they're just sitting in there sort of littering my own wallet. So I don't know what the point of all of this was, but I think the nadir was in December when uh, the Trump trading cards went on sale. Fun fact about those trading cards, it appears that a lot of them used stolen copyrighted imagery <laughs> and basically just like pasted his head on there. So there are also copyright infringements. So even if you own it, you know, you, you might not really own it. Oh my God. Well, I mean, that, that I, it's hypothetical to end the podcast. I just <laughs> love imagining the idea of someone trying to sell one of these nfts and then getting sued for copyright infringement like that would be the perfect combination of things like imagine trying to defend yourself in that hypothetical of like well no because it's an nft and i bought it but i don't have to take any responsibility for the fact that it was a the stupidest investment of all time and b also somehow copyright infringement that i didn't realize like that's enough to just make my head explode I think we should probably leave it there then. Well, we have to. Okay. So um, Jason, thank you as always for joining me. Um, as I mentioned, we'll be back in uh, February with another uh, FinTech recap, including more Can't Let It Goes. That will also be running in my new podcast feed. So watch for that. In the meantime, Jason, thank you again and have a great rest of your day. Yeah. Until next time.